Good evening and welcome. I'm Diane Meyerhoff, host for tonight's Candidate Forum for Chittenden County State Senate. Today's show is being aired live on Channel 17 and streamed live on the Channel 17 website. We welcome your comments and questions. Please join the conversation at 862-3966. The Chittenden County Senate delegation is made up of six candidates, six seats. As such, we'll be talking to each candidate um, in three separate groups. Tonight, right now, joining me are Democratic incumbent Debbie Ingram, Fair Representation Vermont candidate Joshua Knox, Democratic incumbent Jenny Lyons, and Republican Paul Dame. Thank you all so much for joining us tonight. Thanks for having us, Diane. Of course. The ground rules for tonight's forum is that the candidates will make opening statements of up to two minutes each. Then they will answer prepared questions also for two minutes with a possible one-minute rebuttal. We'd like the candidates in their opening statements to talk about why they're running and the experience that they will bring to the position. And we're going to start with Debbie. Thank Welcome. you very much. Yes, thank you. Uh, thanks to Channel 17 for having these forums. It's very important to help people understand uh, who we are, especially when there's so many of us, right? Uh, so uh, my name is Debbie Ingram, and I am a current uh, state senator. Um, I uh, serve on the Health and Welfare Committee and on the Education Committee. So those are issues that are of particular interest to me. Um, I also bring um, experience from the municipal realm. I served on the Williston Select Board for six years and the Williston Planning Commission for five years and on the Chittenden County Regional Planning Commission. Um, and in my day job, I am the executive director of a nonprofit called Vermont Interfaith Action, which is a grassroots uh, coalition of caring and inclusive congregations that work together to affect systemic change around issues of social justice. So through that work, I have uh, acquired quite a bit of knowledge in affordable housing and health care, transportation, education, criminal justice reform, and economic dignity. Um, so with all of those different, uh, different hats, I feel that I bring quite a lot of experience and knowledge uh, to the State Senate. And I also um, have the opportunity to really listen to everyday Vermonters uh, on the ground, uh, at the grassroots. And I think that's something that is uh, very important. Um, I've always had a, a heart for justice and um, uh, a lot of compassion for, for people and what they go through. And I uh, think that's a very important part of my role in the Senate. I'm there, uh, in my opinion, we're all there to um, to contribute to our communities, but to make the lives of Vermonters better. And that's what I'm trying to do. Thank you. Joshua, opening statement. Yes. Hi, I'm, I'm Joshua Knox, of course, running for Chittenden Senate. Um, <clears throat> first of all, I'd like to thank the other candidates for being here. This is a great, <clears throat> excuse me, great forum for democracy. We like that. Forum for democracy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you, should, you should trademark it. Um, <laughs> I'd like to thank my wife, Melanie, and my son, Everett, for letting me upend our family schedule again, running around the county. Here we are again. Um, so I'm running to bring more voices to the state legislature. In, in my day job, I am a teacher at Mount Mansfield Union High School in the Chittenden East District. I have been on the Ethics Planning Commission now for about five years. And between those two things, well, I'll talk about being a teacher first. If you're a teacher for any amount of time, what you become is sort of a sounding board. You become a willing ear. You become almost a confessional. And so there's a lot of stories and voices that I hear on a, on a regular basis that I, I don't necessar necessarily hear reflected in our politics. And we often say in education that every social issue 
comes through our door first, and they all come in together. And so when I think of the issues we're going to talk about, when I talk about <clears throat> opioids or affordable housing or how to make Vermont a better state, I, I don't think of statistics, I don't think of anecdotes, I, I think of faces of students and friends and neighbors, and it's about, it's about stories for me and weaving those stories into a narrative about who we are as a state and who we can be for this generation and generations to come. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Ginny, opening statement. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Diane, and uh, thanks to Channel 17. This is a terrific opportunity for not only for us sitting at the table, but also for the folks out in the, in the um, audience, and we greatly appreciate being able to share with our constituents. Uh, I am in the Senate now, and I look forward to being back in the Senate in January, and I would ask for your vote, and I'll do that up front. Um, you know, my experience it came from uh, being on my school board and then serving for nearly 10 years as chair of the Williston Select Board when we went through some very difficult times that divided the town around development. And I think most people are familiar with uh, the Williston uh, Taft Corners area. That was such a difficult time, not, not, not just for me, but for everyone in town. And it took a lot of energy on my part to bring people together. Uh, it, when you're sitting on a select board, you're not sitting as a Democrat or a Republican or a progressive or an independent. You're sitting as a citizen trying to bring the, make the community a healthy environment. So that's part of my experience. Another part of my experience, of course, has been in the Senate, and I look forward to talking more about that as we go through the uh, program. I also have um, served uh, as a professor of biology at Trinity College in Burlington for over 27 years and got to know not just Burlington, but also the issues that are intrinsic to um, biology and the environment, all of the social issues that we face today, whether it's addiction, um, whether all of our public health issues are really embedded in our environmental ethic and, uh, and our interest in, in science and natural resources. Uh, so I bring a lot of experience uh, from my background working with those in the social sciences as well as those in the natural sciences uh, to um, in a very practical way to the Senate. And I look forward to uh, going back and representing the citizens who I listen to year-round uh, through email or meetings. And uh, thank you. So it's good to be here. Thank you, Ginny. Paul, opening statement. Thanks. Uh, so two things, you know, who am I and, and what do I hope to accomplish? So my name is Paul Dame. I grew up on a dairy farm uh, down in Brandon, Vermont. Um, and uh, came up to the Burlington area when I enrolled at uh, UVM. And I had uh, the awesome privilege to live and work downtown uh, in Burlington for about nine years. Uh, and so I know what it's like to, to live downtown, work downtown. It was great using my car once or twice a week when I had to get groceries uh, and being able to walk to work. And so I realized how important it is uh, to have a walkable city in Burlington. Uh, then once I got married, uh, my wife and I moved out to Essex Junction uh, where we lived for eight years. Uh, all three of our kids were 
born uh, while we were out there. So I also understand kind of the uh, outside of the Burlington area um, in Chittenden County, uh, the suburban areas like Essex, Williston, South Burlington. Um, so I understand uh, those areas as, as well. Uh, one of the reasons that I'm running is I own my own financial services practice. Um, and, uh, and I've seen, unfortunately, uh, a lot of my clients uh, who are getting to retirement uh, looking at the, the cost of, uh, of living on a fixed income, and some people can't do it anymore. And, uh, and I want to continue to serve people here in Vermont. I want uh, people that love Vermont to be able to stay here. Uh, if they like the warm weather, that's fine, but, uh, but that's not the only reason. And so I want to make sure that we keep uh, Vermont a, a place that, that folks can stay in. Uh, I served while I was in Essex. I served uh, in the House of Representatives there um, and uh, served on the uh, Human Services Committee, so to Jenny's counterpart there in, in the House, uh, and uh, dealt with a, a couple of, uh, one of the main issues uh, that I want to focus on, which is uh, the opioid epidemic. Uh, it's one of those areas that I know that if we can uh, be uh, intelligent, be smart, be careful and compassionate about, uh, it's an area that we can see a lot of progress in, uh, in other areas. Uh, the second issue, which is also related to that, is uh, creating more opportunity, uh, economic opportunities for Vermonters. Um, uh, we need to maintain uh, Vermont's uh, uh, ability to be a great place to live, work and play, uh, and make sure that uh, the employers that are around here that uh, give us all an ability to put food on the table and enjoy the recreation in Vermont, that those employers stay here and, and expand. Um, and so those are the two key reasons I'm, I'm running uh, to, to kind of get promoted from the House uh, to the Senate with your help. Great. Thank you very much. Um, let's talk about the economy. According to Forbes magazine, uh, Vermont's economic outlook is projected to be the second worst in the United States over the next five years, um, while income growth is also expected to lag behind. Do you agree with this assessment, and what is your plan of action to strengthen Vermont's economic outlook? And we are going to start with Joshua. I, I, I do agree with that, and I've, since I announced I was running, I've gotten a lot of emails, Facebook messages, Twitter, whatever, from former students who would have loved to stay in Vermont but were unable to. And so I, I entirely agree with that. I think one of the traps we sort of get into in Vermont is, and both parties do this, but they tend to try to play catch up with bigger states. And what I mean by that is, is about offering a better deal for businesses to come here. And my view is that we can always be undercut, if you will, in the race to the bottom. Vermont's going to lose. It's a small state. It's a brave little state, but it's a small state. And so there's that difficulty. So my, my approach would sort of be two-pronged. One would be to make it easier for people to stay here on the, the labor side of things. And I hope what we talk about are things like affordable childcare, early childhood education, making those things affordable for working Vermonters. Because you need a workforce that's willing to put down roots here, people that are willing to put down roots here. That's one side of it. The other side, and I think we'll probably talk about it as well, is the entrepreneurial culture. We're not, like I said, going to attract large businesses necessarily of, of the old type. I don't think that's necessarily what Vermont's strength is going to be. But I think our strength is a local entrepreneurial culture from which we can build up. And you see that in sort of our agricultural products, like I'm a a fan of the sort of cider boom revolution we have going on, things like that. That's going to be the Vermont future, some small niche thing that Vermont does well, and that's what we need to support. Okay, great. We're talking about strengthening Vermont's economy. Ginny. Um, thank you. 
Uh, first, I, I don't know which, which article from Forbes did this prediction come from. Do I know it's know? fairly recent. Um, Pretty recent. I, I, someone did look it up. <laughs> okay. But it's, it's a crystal ball about the future yeah. and sort of, I don't know how predictive it is based on the work that we've done recently. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I think that Vermont is a little more resilient than saying that we're, we're going to fail over the next five years and we're going to be second lowest. Uh, maybe we will, but uh, I'm not willing to give in to that thinking. I think that we have a lot of challenges. There's no doubt about it. Um, I, I do think that some of the comments we hear about keeping young people in the state are pretty, pretty right on. Uh, but on the other hand, we've seen a remarkable growth in our solar industry, not just in putting the panels up and having the workforce to do that, but also in the production of solar product as well as other energy products. We have wonderful biotech companies, including one right across the bridge here in Winooski. So, um, and we have maker hubs beginning uh, across the, the state. We know that we have uh, telecommunications uh, that is lagging, but we're focusing that telecom in specific areas so that we can build that um, telecom, telecom industry in a way that is Vermont specific, small business specific. We've, we've invested in our working landscapes through the Enterprise Board. We're diversifying agriculture. We have wonderful small businesses that are selling uh, butter to uh, restaurants in New York and uh, beef to New York, uh, that, to high-end restaurants. So uh, Vermont, the label Vermont is valuable in and of itself. I'm not willing to give up on Vermont over the next five years. Uh, so you can see that I'm very high on our state. But I, I, I do think that the challenges that we face in terms of childcare in our past budget we added, um, we increased the earned income tax credit for folks with kids so that it would be now 36% of federal level instead of 32%. So people will have some benefit to invest in their, in their young kids and, and I'm growing. I'm going to stop you there. I, okay. I mean, we could go on, but I, you know, I think that we're a little more resilient than um, saying what the article has said, and I'd love to see the article and see what it's based on. Okay, great. Um, finally, Paul. Yeah, I, uh, I'd say I agree with uh, Jenny that I do believe Vermont is a, is a robust, resilient, uh, resilient place. Uh, we're kind of Yankee can-do bootstrappers up here, uh, but that doesn't mean that there aren't barriers that uh, can be frustrating uh, for Vermonters. I think, uh, you know, four things off the top of my head that I think can improve the business climate and, and therefore the economy is uh, looking at uh, addressing uh, the cost of electricity. Um, I uh, just had somebody come to look at uh, our house and uh, looking for solar panels. And they told me that Vermont is the, uh, the fifth most expensive utility rates in the country. It's hard to attract business here with, with a number like that. Uh, so we've got to make sure that we're looking at policies that are producing uh, a, a, a competitive environment where we can get our utility rates uh, across the board. Whether you're a big company like Global Foundries in my hometown in Essex Junction, or you're um, an entrepreneur and you're in a maker space and it's just you and your laptop, you gotta have power. In the information economy, we've gotta have that. The second issue is, uh, is permitting. Uh, I think we have a, a very complex uh, problem. Uh, we've got a big hole in the middle of downtown Burlington 
because of issues related to, to permitting process and investors don't understand what the process looks like. How do we move forward? When can we move forward? Uh, it's just too, it's too complicated. And, the, and in my backyard, again, in Essex, you've got uh, the circumvential highway. I mean, uh, the, you know you have a problem when the state starts building a road that it doesn't know that it can't finish. The permitting process is too complicated. Second thing, we, or third thing we need to do is make sure we're increasing wages for Vermonters. Uh, it's really easy to say, hey, we're going to try to uh, raise the minimum wage, but that only helps uh, the people at the bottom. I think if we can make Vermont uh, a place that's a more robust, uh, vibrant economy, we can uh, create more opportunities where companies are competing for wages. That's going to bring wages up for everybody, low, middle, and upper class. And the fourth thing is, is personal experience is helping uh, uh, sole proprietors move from zero employees to one. If we can do that simple thing, help every sole proprietor who's working just by themselves, whether you're a plumber, uh, electrician, you don't have somebody to manage your schedule, do your books, uh, being able to go from zero employees to one uh, can make a huge impact in those services becoming available to a greater uh, group of Vermonters uh, and providing jobs and helping that individual focus on what they're good at. I know for me it was a big step when I hired my first employee uh, earlier this year, probably something I should have done a year and a half ago, but there was a big concern about all all the regulations and, and restrictions that would be on me when I went from zero employees to one. And I think we've got to make that a smoother transition uh, for sole proprietors. Great, thank you. And Debbie, we're talking about strengthening Vermont's economy. Yes, well, I did actually look up the, uh, the, ah. the Forbes article. Uh, <laughs> Yay! And it was, <laughs> well, it was somewhat surprising to me because uh, uh, since the uh, 2008 recession, Vermont has had the uh, second fastest growing economy in New England, so I'm not sure exactly how they arrived at, at their figures, but um, uh, but I do think there are things that we can do to um, both to address both parts of, of what you mentioned, which is uh, to make a better business climate, but also to address the stagnant wages. Um, in terms of helping our businesses, our small businesses, I think especially flourish, because I agree that we're not um, a prime site for large manufacturing uh, companies. Um, but when I talk to small business owners, uh, I hear from them that uh, there are kind of three things that they wish were improved in Vermont. One is um, it's very difficult for them to find skilled laborers. Uh, and I think that's partly because Vermont is actually dead last in the nation in spending on our community and state colleges. Uh, and I think we should invest more money in, in that to help our Vermont, um, Vermont young people get the skills that they need for, the, for good jobs. Um, secondly, our housing is so expensive, it makes it difficult for businesses to recruit and retain workers. Uh, when people are paying more than 30% or more, even sometimes more than 50% on their housing, they don't have, uh, this isn't a good place for them to live. Um, so we need to work on that more. And then thirdly, I, our infrastructure broadly defined needs to be improved. I think we're, we're making some strides, but we need to continue to look at the energy sector, our utilities. Um, uh, our telecommunications, especially to our rural areas, and, and, our, and our roads. And then on the other side of the equation, looking at our, our wages, they have indeed um, stagnated, which makes it very, very difficult for our economy to grow. And that's why um, the majority party um, supported and passed uh, raising a minimum, the minimum wage gradually over several years, but to get to $15 an hour. And um, you know, it's very unfortunate that the governor vetoed that. I think that's, uh, that's definitely a measure that we need to use to help Vermonters and help our economy. Okay, thank you. Um, let's uh, turn over to um, healthcare. 
How do we limit healthcare spending in Vermont while also remaining one of the healthiest states in the nation? And Ginny, you're gonna start us off. Okay, thank you. Um, you know, as, as vice chair of the Health and Welfare Committee, I've uh, been working very hard on this issue, uh, also a member of the Finance Committee, so it's a challenge, actually, to look at how do you contain costs at the same time improving quality. But we know that we've made great strides, um, not the least of which, and, and there's some controversy about this, of course, but having the accountable care organization uh, through, in, in, our, in our area, through our um, medical center, the UVM Medical Center, and knowing that now the medical center is not only taking care, uh, acute care uh, for people who are in the hospital, but we're also seeing an extension of care so when people leave and they have to go home, there's a place for them. So our visiting nurse association has become very much involved. Our choices for care program, where people are can stay at home or go to ho go home and receive care early. So that increased quality of care, and at the same time, a shorter stay in the hospital that just does save money. So though, and the SASH program, of course, which is uh, really important, and especially, uh, again, for those who are in our affordable housing environment. Um, but I, I do think that so many things that we've done, like telehealth, where folks are monitored for uh, their health offsite, or telemedicine, where people actually can access a physician's office offsite, so the physician is um, sitting in, in his office and the patient is in another uh, a far, a far away getting care, and that saves travel time and it does overall save money. Um, the most, one of the more significant things that we've done in this state is something called the Blueprint for Health, which looks at, a, which is a chronic care initiative and has built, I think for Vermont, a real opportunity around primary care. So as we build primary care and preventive care for every single age group, then we're saving money on those chronic conditions that might emerge later on, including heart disease or diabetes. So this is, this is exciting. It's a national, nationally recognized uh, program that we have developed and I think is going to allow for us to expand into primary care. We're working on things like uh, prescription drug cost containment. We passed a bill this year on uh, drug importation from Canada where uh, we can I'm need lower costs. So there are a lot, a lot more things. I, know. <laughs> so, <laughs> I will stop. <laughs> Paul, healthcare spending. Yeah, uh, I think you know. So often it's easy to get lost in uh, in addressing uh, insurance and coverage issues, and what we really need to be focusing on is addressing the the cost of of the care the cost of delivery. Uh, we talk about different uh, payment models and all we're doing is kind of playing a shell game uh, and pass the buck. If, if the cost of going to the doctor, if the cost of the treatment at the ER goes up, it doesn't matter who's paying for it, we're all gonna be paying more. So I think we need to make sure that, that we uh, do the things that have, have proven to, to bring prices down. That's uh, present patients with more choice. Allow them to have uh, greater choices in terms of how they, they manage their primary care, whether they do it under a regular fee-for-service model, that's great. If they want to be uh, part of like a concierge service, if that's appropriate for them and their particular health needs, uh, allowing them to, to do that. 
uh, also uh, allowing folks to figure out what kind of insurance makes sense for them. Unfortunately, Vermont is the only state in the country that makes it illegal to buy health insurance outside the exchange. Why are we limiting people's choices? Yeah, the, the exchange have a good, robust plan, but some people don't want that. Some people want uh, something that, that addresses just what they need. Uh, and, and I think we need to give patients those, those choices. Uh, we need to get uh, you know, government and insurance companies, in one degree, uh, out from in between the patient and, and their physician. Um, you know, I think uh, another thing that, that was a concern that was mentioned at uh, the community of uh, elder Vermonters, uh, the, uh, that we went to on Friday was they have some real concerns about the ACO model. Um, and uh, we've got one of the best parts of, of healthcare in, in government is uh, Vermont's uh, Choices for Care model that addresses long-term care needs uh, for Vermonters. That's something that's working well, that people are happy with that program. Uh, it's reducing costs, and more importantly than reducing costs, it's helping Vermonters get the treatment in the setting that they want and that they're comfortable with. And the folks who like that program or happy with that program are very concerned about the changes that could come with that. Uh, it's one of the problems of kind of doing a, throwing the baby out with the bathwater and trying to remake the system uh, top down is that we have parts that are working well, especially for elderly Vermonters. We've got to make sure that we maintain that for them. So I think it's, it's basically providing more choices uh, for, for patients uh, and, and make sure we understand what we're doing well and keep doing it well. Okay, thank you. Debbie, healthcare spending. Well, I appreciate Mr. Dame being such a, a good um, proponent for a particular point of view, and I would say that I'm probably 180 degrees uh, uh, from uh, from what he just articulated. I think that um, the uh, the ACOs are our best hope for uh, working towards a system that um, that is is based on healthcare as a public good, uh, which looks at it in more of a universal way. I, I, uh, long term and ultimately at the national level, I am a strong supporter of, um, uh, of a, a single payer kind of system, uh, Bernie's Medicare for all. And I think we should do as much as we can in Vermont to, to move towards that. And the, the good thing about the ACOs is that they, um, they move us from a fee for service system into a, uh, a payment per, uh, per person in a, in a regional area. Uh, and they encourage um, doctors to physicians, healthcare providers of all kinds to work together to provide coordinated care and to keep the people in their region healthy um, and not spend unnecessarily on things that, that you know, that are not needed. So, um, so I, I think that they are going to lead to uh, greater savings. Um, I am also proud on the health and welfare committee that I serve on and that Senator Lyons serves on. We, we moved forward a universal primary care um, system. Uh, we're, tr we're trying to move Vermont closer to that because uh, in, in areas where they spend uh, states or countries where uh, of 20 percent uh, approximately of the general health care spending is spent on primary care, um, there is there's greater long-term savings and people are healthier you have much better outcomes. Right now in Vermont, we only spend about six or six to seven percent of our total spending on primary care. So the more we move towards uh, towards that preventive care, the healthier our population will be and the lower our costs will be. Okay, great. Joshua, healthcare spending. Yes, I would absolutely agree with the idea that primary care and preventive should be the, the objective. I agree with that. I, I would differ a little bit in how we get to a larger healthcare system. 
uh, like a universal care, a Medicare for all, if you will. Uh, I think it's um, Christine Halquist has sort of an interesting idea, if I'm attributing it correctly, to partner with other, other states. And I, the reason I like that a great deal is if you look in what Canada did in building up their, their system, it came from the provinces first. And as I said earlier, Vermont is a small state and we're one of the oldest states and we've got a, a low birth rate. And so, so long as we do have a, a private insurance market that exists, and those are the economic incentives, the size of our pool will be very determinative of, of what we can do. And I, li I like the approach of, of so-called Romney Care in Massachusetts, and I'd like to see something about getting Vermont in on Romney Care, if you will. And that, that would increase the size of the pool, and that would allow us more flexibility. And then perhaps New Hampshire wants on board, perhaps Maine gets on board, and we, we build up at a regional level. And I don't know how that would, how that would work, how long that would take, but the idea is to increase the, the pool and in the interim focus on preventative and primary care. Okay, thank you. Um, we're going to switch to a couple of questions that came in in advance of our forum. Uh, now that uh, marijuana is legal, do you support taxing, taxing and regulating it? And we are going to start with Paul. Yeah, yeah I, I think uh, now that uh, it's legal for Vermonters to, to use marijuana, uh, it doesn't make sense to create, uh, to maintain a system where it's illegal to buy it from a source where the quantity, uh, I'm sorry, the quality uh, and the safety of the product is completely unknown. Uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, it kind of leads us back to the early days of alcohol prohibition when people were, you know, getting sick off bathtub gin. Uh, and I've talked to a number of folks uh, uh, who have had experiences with um, people in their families who have, um, you know, gotten, uh, had some very adverse effects because the marijuana that they were using um, was not just marijuana. So I think, to, to me, the big issue about moving to towards a legalization uh, model needs to be to eliminate the black market. Everything that was wrong with alcohol prohibition uh, is still mostly maintained in, in the current status uh, for marijuana. You have, uh, uh, the only place to obtain it is through illegal means, or a very small percentage of people can, can grow it themselves or are comfortable with that. So I think we need to move to a model where uh, it's available commercially, and like every other product that we offer on the market, there's some very basic safety tests so that consumers are protected. Um, you know, I, in the House, I voted against a, a huge, uh, you know, big government bill that required a $30,000 permit to be able to grow marijuana. That, that's insane. All we're doing is protecting large companies. And my big concern with a model that looked like that is we're going to have big tobacco come in and they're going to do the same thing with marijuana. Um, that's not going to help Vermont. Uh, it's not going to help Vermonters. So I think if you're going to have a, a system that, that's uh, where marijuana is legally uh, available and commercially available, we've got to uh, focus on making the, the barrier to entry uh, appropriate uh, and not so out of, out of uh, pace that uh, Vermonters who are already engaged in other um, uh, activities here uh, can, can make it easy for them to add that to their, their current model of services rather than larger companies coming in uh, from out of state. So I think it makes sense to, to make it commercially available and I think uh, it makes sense to apply the same tax that we might have either on uh, regular sales tax 
price or uh, be willing to look at you know what the way that we tax cigarettes on, on a on a uh, weight measurement rather than a price measurement because who knows what's going to happen with the price that's a big concern i have about like the rand study is we have no idea what prices are going to do once it becomes commercially available especially with what's going on in other states so uh so i think uh, you know treating it a lot like like alcohol uh or or tobacco or other controlled substances seems to make sense given where we are today okay we're talking about taxing and regulating marijuana debbie I, uh, too, agree that we should have a regulated uh, industry. I voted in favor of the Senate bill that would regulate from seed to sale, uh, and I'm sorry that that, didn't, that wasn't what we actually finally wound up with. Um, um, 80,000 Vermonters, uh, we've been told, uh, already use uh, marijuana. It doesn't make any sense uh, for us not to uh, regulate it to, to make sure that the quality is there, that it's not laced with other substances. Uh, um, and, you know, frankly, it doesn't make any sense not to get the revenue uh, from, from that. And uh, I think it's important what we spend the revenue on. I do have a concern about our young people. Um, I, I know that, you know, sometimes young people can um, feel that if something's illegal, then maybe they won't try it. But as soon as it's legal, well, then maybe it's a little more attractive to them. So I, I think we need to make sure that we uh, spend some of the revenue on education and prevention programs. I think we also need to come up with uh, some kind of uh, field sobriety test for, um, for marijuana. Um, but uh, I do think it makes a lot of sense for us to, to regulate it and to, um, uh, to move ahead with that. Okay. Uh, marijuana taxing and regulating. Joshua. Uh, I would first like to say that teenagers do not seem to be deterred by its illegality in any other state. <laughs> so um, I'm, I'm also in favor of a, a tax and, and regulate structure for, for all the reasons previously stated, safety. One thing I would want to be very clear to note is I don't want this to be sort of a fun source for anything outside of, as you said, prevention and education about drug abuse. I don't, if you'll pardon the pun, I don't want the state to get addicted to this as revenue for something else because then we have this perverse incentive structure where we need more people smoking. I'd, I'd be against that, but taxing and, and regulating it, and that's the next step, yes, totally. Okay, Ginny. Uh, thank you. Uh, so we did pass the seed to sale bill a couple of years ago in the Senate, and it was then uh, rejected by the House, so we ended up with a current system of deregulating um, or making legal uh, lower levels of marijuana possession. So the, the issue is, uh, how much money does it raise? And I know the tax department has said that it doesn't raise sufficient funds to do everything that we would like it to do, so would only pay for the administration of the program. So we want to know that up front. We didn't have that information when we previously passed the bill. The other issue is, uh, and I agree 100%, that prevention programs need to be in place, and I believe they should be in place before the, the um, tax and regulate system goes into place. So there's a, a lag time, um, and uh, we need to get the money from somewhere. Perhaps it's the tobacco settlement funds that we've recently gotten. There should be some more of that coming in. But I, I, I agree with those who say that we have to be careful. We, um, a fund for, that would come in from the taxation system for marijuana needs to be protected 
so that it goes for prevention and it goes for those the the ag agency to oversee the growth of the marijuana to make sure it's not contaminated needs to be sure that it's labeled accurately and that access is uh, is prevented for underage folks age of 21 seems appropriate but even though the literature says age of 25 is better uh, for the use it's it's really unfortunate that this drug which is now a medicinal drug and carefully managed by our um, our, our medical our medical uh, dispensaries this drug is seen as a Schedule One drug at the federal level, so it's seen as having absolutely no value, and yet we know that there's value for medicinal purposes, and we're seeing that people are using it um, and can use it without uh, running into um, either health or legal problems once they're older and use it moderately. Um, I am concerned, I, I did talk with someone the other day who was raised the issue that um, if we start a tax and regulation program, we are going to see the bigger businesses targeting people who are open to addiction, the same way that the ads for alcohol might target someone open to addiction. So we need to do this carefully, but I, I think we did a good job with the bill uh, a couple of years ago in the Senate. And I'd like to see that bill come back and reevaluated. Great, thank you. Um, we have another question that came out from the audience. Uh, the Trump administration, as part of its efforts to dismantle the Affordable Care Act (ACA), is now allowing small employers to leave the small group marketplace through their associations. Uh, there is broad agreement this will lead to higher costs for those who are left in the individual/small group insurance pool. Uh, some people believe this will put the stability of our health insurance marketplace at risk. Do you share these concerns? Will you work to prevent this from taking place? And Debbie, we're gonna start with you. Okay, thank you. Um, well, yes, I think part of the dismantling of, of Obamacare, uh, if we're Care Act um, is that you know removing the um, requirement, the mandate that uh, that everybody pay into it um, ha has been a, a terrible detriment and has led to um, even more rising costs. Um, you have to have, if you view healthcare as a public good, that everybody is going to need at some point in in their lives. Then, and if we all pay into it, uh, it, it will uh, make the the um, payment structure more equitable overall, and it will keep costs down, and it 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 will keep the the premiums um, reasonable. Um, it just really stands to reason. So I think that the Trump administration has been sabotaging the Affordable Care Act uh, by making these changes. And uh, yes, I will do everything I possibly can to um, to ensure that that we continue to view healthcare as a public good that every person deserves and that everybody needs to pay into because they're going to use it at, even when they're younger and healthier at some point in their lives they're going to need it and use it and just as we require social security uh, and medicare even younger people have to pay into it because they're going to use it on down the line that's the way we need to think of our health care plans as well okay so we're talking about um health care spending through exchange versus association joshua uh, I would actually second what Senator Ingram said about the idea of people being able to leave the pool. I mean, that was my point earlier on. If we have a smaller pool, that leads to greater instability. And again, in a small state, that's not something we can we can well afford. So were I elected, I, I would seek to fight that move, yes. Okay. Ginny. 
Uh, thank you. So we did pass a bill last year, it was in Senate Finance, uh, that the Department of Financial Regulation brought to us asking us to allow for these uh, small association plans. The question that we had at that point, I was very concerned about these plans becoming outside of our ability to regulate and oversee. So we were reassured that we can, uh, we can keep, <laughs> keep people together. Um, the benefit is that many small businesses that are, might have a difficult time helping their employees now have a way to provide health care. Um, so one of the things that I would like to look at going forward is can we, will, will these plans also be able to access exchange plans? Um, will these plans provide for co-pays and deductibles that are not exorbitant? So there, there are a lot of questions. This is a new, this is a new uh, wrinkle. Um, I think we're all concerned that it will lead to a disassembly of the Affordable Care Act, which, which it shouldn't, uh, since the state can regulate and can oversee. But um, I do share the concerns that Senator Ingram men mentioned initially. We'll be, um, we will be working on this, but and we are we will be listening to our small businesses. I know that the Vermont um, uh, that Vermont businesses are very supportive, but uh, they may may not be supportive if all of a sudden people are going without or having to pay uh, high copays and high deductibles. Okay, we're talking about healthcare spending through exchange versus associations. Paul. Yeah, I think I couldn't disagree more with my other three colleagues <laughs> here. Um, there is no place that a one-size-fits-all model is more inappropriate than healthcare. I mean, the way that we interact with our physician and, and what needs to happen in that arrangement uh, it's a it's totally contrary to the thing that government does well is do one thing the same for everybody you build a road everybody uses the road they need the same kind of road with healthcare it's completely the opposite everybody needs something different uh, you know I just was speaking with somebody earlier today who said that 20 percent of hospital budget is processing insurance claims right uh, and the problem is that providers whether you're a hospital or a physician your your hands are tied right because you have to take that kind of insurance because Vermont has gone from having a place where we had 10 or 15 insurance companies to two. And really, it's, it's mostly one. About 80% of the state or something like that uses Blue Cross Blue Shield. So providers has, have lost their ability uh, to, to, to truly be uh, in, independent. I think we need to get to a place where we have more choices for people. Um, you know, I think it's important not to think of these association plans as some foreign, newfangled thing that we don't really know anything about. We had this in Vermont a couple of years ago. The Chamber of Commerce used to provide health insurance plans to everybody. That's the kind of thing that's talked, that is a, an example of an association plan. We used to have it. Obamacare took it away, took that choice away, and it also really hurt a lot of our chambers of commerce around the state. A lot of them used that, the revenue from uh, those, uh, those premiums to, to fund their uh, uh, to fund the chambers and provide economic development. Um, and I also just want to touch on a couple things as a rebuttal from the last round. Uh, you know, folks are talking about ACO. Again, this is kind of a, uh, a recycled model of the HMOs 
uh, another failed policy uh, from, from the 90s. And when we talk about uh, Medicare for all, uh, we all have Medicare. I have Medicare. I'm paying for Medicare right now, and I won't get to use it for 30 years. Uh, and even the people like my clients who are on Medicare, they're using it. A lot of them need a Medicare supplement uh, to make sure that they get their, their coverage uh, that, that they need. So uh, the only reason Medicare works is because we're taking people, taking money from people like me for 30 years, taking that premium and never providing uh, benefits. Okay? Uh, if any insurance company tried to do that in the state of Vermont, take premium from somebody and deny every claim for 30 years, we'd kick them out. Okay, so the idea that, uh, that, that Medicare for all is going to be a simple, easy solution and everybody's going to get everything they want, uh, the numbers just don't, just don't work for it. Can I just say one thing sure. about Medicare? Uh, you're paying in for the future. That's what Medicare is. So if we had Medicare from the time you're born, then we'd be paying in and be utilizing it. The, the, the problem and with... What would that cost? Well, I'm just saying... Do we want to do that? You can answer that for yourself. But I do believe that Medicare is an extremely valuable program. The problem is we haven't funded it sufficiently over time, and we should be increasing the funding for that. Rather than every year the Social Security goes up minimally or not at all, and Medicare goes up even more. I know it's predicted to go up another couple hundred dollars next year, a hundred and something next year. So yes, and people do need supplements. Why do they need supplements? Because it's not sufficient, and we need to make sure that it is sufficient. That's a federal level issue. On the association... Virginia, if the feds can't do it, what makes you think that the state of Vermont is The feds is can't do it. it. Right, right now we have a road block in, in Washington, D.C., and we should be having a conversation rather than an argument. So it's, if you can talk about how can we get to where we need to be with health care, I would say I ask our congressional delegation to do that and others from other states. Okay, I'm going to stop you there just to give okay. other folks a chance. Joshua and then... Um, <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm sorry, go ahead. <clears throat> I was I was going to ask you if we have these smaller plans, doesn't that introduce more instability in pricing? Isn't that precisely the point we want? We want larger pools to have stability in the pricing for everybody and be able to contain costs better. It doesn't seem to make sense to me to make smaller and smaller fragmented pools, unless I'm misunderstanding you. Well, what happens is if you have one big pool and there's a problem with that pool, everyone suffers. Right? I mean, that's one of the problems that we have with our Medicaid system is we have one big pool, uh, but when there, there's cost, uh, you know, utilization costs are high, it, it gets moved around, and the only thing that the state is able to do is keep rates low. That's why providers uh, are getting paid about 42 cents on the dollar. If we didn't have the private insurance market that we have, a lot of physicians wouldn't be able to make it. They certainly can't uh, maintain their their practice on Medicaid rates, and uh, even on Medicare rates, it, it's it's a tough cost. They they need uh, insurance companies there that are paying those higher rates to keep them sustainable. The problem is that these physicians have a huge chunk of what they need to charge is going to processing the claims, because if they don't take Blue Cross, they have no patients. A few years ago when we had places like Golden Rule, a lot of people, a lot of my clients remember that, we had uh, a, a multiple number of policies, so physicians had, weren't uh, bound to the insurance companies. Uh, they were able to, to narrow what, the, the, what they were going to offer, uh, and they gave patients and the physicians more choice. Debbie, do you want to jump in? I would um, like to. Um, every other developed country in the world has some kind of system 
that that is um, that pools people's resources and provides health care for them, and they have they spend less money and they have better outcomes. Uh, I look at healthcare in the same way that I look at our, our fire departments, our police departments, our libraries, our roads. There are certain things that that really don't fit the capitalist model of having lots of choices uh, and letting consumers and the free market decide things. There, there are certain things like, and I would put healthcare in that same category um, with the fire department and the police department, where we're better off when we all pool our resources and create a more equitable system. We spent, there's so much money already in the system. Uh, in Vermont alone, we spend $4 billion a year on our, on our healthcare. Uh, it's a matter of moving from premiums that are set by um, co you know, commercial companies um, that, are, that, that vary greatly depending on a lot of different factors to having uh, a system in which we can make, make it more equitable and we can actually reduce the, the costs and provide better care. But we've been on that track for over 10 years and costs keep going up. But we haven't got we haven't gotten to the the point that we're trying to get to. We we still have but whatever, premiums. Whatever so I'd like to insert is. a comment if I could. You know, we're starting to move on to a conversation about all payer and how we pay per patient per month, and that system right now is in the state of Vermont is in its second year of, uh, and we're looking at how will all payer work. If you pay a physician or practitioner for each patient per month, then the patient that accesses a lot of care gets a lot of, that, that money is used up, and the patients who don't get a lot of care, that money may be left over, and at the end of the year, there's so a balance. you're saying it's more profitable not to treat people. I'm saying it may be more profitable not to treat people, but that doesn't mean that quality goes down, and that is where oversight is so critical, and that's what our Agency of Human Services and the University of Vermont Medical Center is doing right now. They're working together to decide, is this a good way to care for patients, particularly those uh, in, in primary care and then moving forward into um, other uh, okay. specialty I'm care. I'm gonna stop, we I know this, we can have on. another hour on this and I, I'm, I'm all over it, but I do wanna make sure that the folks who, who, who submitted questions get them answered and we're almost out of time, believe it or not. Um, so I wanna ask you all um, what your opinion is on, on the explain the asterisk legislation campaign. Do you think college students that are dismissed for sexual misconduct should be able to transfer to schools with no notation on their transcript as to why they were dismissed? And looks like, Joshua, you're gonna start us off. Um, I think <clears throat> with respect to that, there should be some notation if there was, again, not just on the suspicion thereof, but if there was an actual provable, provable um, juridical something like that, then yes, it should pass along, absolutely. Okay, Ginny. Now you're all going to be really short, and then they're not going to have time. And this always happens to me. <laughs> Everyone's going to say yes, no, yes. Well, the, yeah, the person who was interested in this legislation actually contacted me, and I said, as long as uh, some uh, incident that's been demonstrated to be true, yes, absolutely. Okay. Uh, Paul. Yeah, I guess uh, I'm not as familiar with this uh, issue, but uh, I'm just wondering if, if there's a case of sexual assault, it seems like that's that's a crime. Those Those people should be in the criminal justice system. Um, but uh, if for some reason they're, they're not, I think as long as there's due process and there's actual findings of, of guilt, uh, any conduct, whether it's 
sexual uh, misconduct, whether it's physical violence, anything that a student does that makes them a danger to other students ought to be mentioned when that, when that university is accepting that student. <laughs> it feels like that's, um, uh, you know, that should be information that the university has at their disposal to decide whether they, they want to uh, accept that student. Again, as long as it's been demonstrated that, that there's, actual, uh, uh, there's actual misconduct. Debbie. Well, in principle, yeah, I, I agree with, with everyone else that, that uh, we, sh you know, I think we're all aware uh, and much more sensitive uh, because of what's been going on in the country uh, of making sure that survivors of uh, any kind of sexual harassment or, or assault are taken seriously and that uh, the perpetrators of, of these kinds of things are held uh, accountable. Uh, um, but it, you know, in setting up a system like that, we need to be careful also that we don't, um, you know, label people who who may not have, in fact, done anything. I mean, th things need to be verified, um, and uh, they do need to be explained. And we also, I, you know, I very strongly believe in giving people second chances. And if if uh, people can learn from their mistakes and their their misconduct. Uh, and can make changes, then I, we want to not always, not label them in perpetuity, but you know, give them a chance to, to learn and to, and to grow and be different in the future. So we had agreement on that one. <laughs> <laughs> All right, good. Um, so I think what we'll do is we're gonna go into um, closing statements, believe it or not. We've, we've, I know, it went really fast, it always does. <laughs> okay, um, and so two minutes, uh, closing statements. Jenny, why don't you start us off? Oh, thank you. Thanks again uh, for allowing us to be here together. You've heard a lot of uh, interesting comments tonight from uh, folks. Uh, one of the things that I value about the Senate is that we do tend to work together. We work in committees and we listen to one another and we listen to others uh, consistently. Our, our perspective changes a bit when we look at some of the information that comes to us. And that's a good thing. And one of the things that I enjoy doing is t staying in touch with my constituents. I hear from constituents summer, winter, fall, and spring, uh, and I thank you all for that. I, I appreciate the comments and I appreciate the information that I receive from you. It isn't unusual for a constituent to send me an idea that becomes a really important bill. For example, um, you know, this year we'll be working, uh, I hope, that we'll be working on an equal, inclusive equal rights amendment. Very concerned about some of the issues that are going on in our state with respect to um, our minority population. I'm also very concerned about what's happening at the federal level. So I look forward to representing everyone in the Senate and uh, thank you very much. Great, thank you, Paul. Thanks. Uh, I have to say, I've been doing uh, uh, these debates for a few years now when I was a candidate for the House in Essex, and this is the most fun uh, debate that I've been a Excellent. part of because I feel like we really had a robust discussion about the issues. And uh, uh, and if uh, if you vote for me for the Senate, that's what you'll continue to get. Uh, I uh, I hear a lot of information that, that uh, is good and helpful, and earlier today we did a press conference on criminal justice reform measures that I think can make Vermont a, a safer and uh, um, a place uh, and uh, and yet can also provide redemption for, for folks who uh, demonstrate their ability to reintegrate with the community. So um, uh, um, I just want to go back to uh, uh, that idea that uh, um, the, my two focuses really are uh, helping to 
uh, increase the, uh, boost the economy, uh, creating a focus on entrepreneurs and helping uh, sole proprietors get from that zero to one uh, um, uh, employee, helping them bridge that gap. Uh, and then the second thing we unfortunately didn't get to talk about uh, is, uh, is uh, opioid, uh, the opioid crisis and, and meeting that head on uh, and addressing that in a way that uh, that's understanding uh, that uh, uh, that we ha we have to help folks, and and the focus that we put on that issue is going to yield us results in other places as well. Um, so if you're uh, if you're looking, as many people are, to, to keep young people here uh, in Vermont, if you want to keep businesses here in Vermont, uh, then then I hope you'll vote for me, Paul Dame, who's a, a young uh, president of the Vermont Young Professionals and uh, and a business owner. Uh, my experience in living in Burlington, living in the outside Burlington area. Uh, helps helps to make me uh, a senator for all of Chittenden County. Great, thank you, Debbie. Closing statements. Great, thank you. Um, well, I'd like to ask the folks who are watching to vote for me on November sixth, or to go early and vote. Um, I would appreciate your returning me to um, to Montpelier. Um, if I get the chance to go back, my top priorities will be um, again passing legislation to raise the minimum wage to fifteen dollars an hour over a gradual period of time. Uh, to help our Vermont workers, uh, and also passing paid family leave, uh, which I also think will help um, Vermonters. We have too many Vermont families who, where both, uh, both adults are working two or three jobs just to make ends meet, and to me that is, that is just wrong, and we need to do something about it. Um, so th those would be my top priorities. Uh, I've also spent a lot of time um, working on systemic racism. I was the, um, uh, the sole sponsor, actually, of the Systemic uh, Racism Mitigation Board um, that, uh, that we did finally get. There was, a, there was a, a few hurdles there with the governor, but it has been passed and it is um, in place now. Um, and uh, I also would like to introduce um, um, an amendment to the Constitution to remove all reference to uh, uh, slavery uh, in the Constitution. Um, and uh, as Senator Lyons said, work with uh, my colleagues to do a lot of other things to improve the lives of Vermonters. Um, and uh, that's, that's the reason that I run and that's the reason that I'd like to, to return again. Thank you. Joshua, closing statements. Yes. Um, Good night, everybody. It was nice to talk with you. Um, I am, like Paul, upset we didn't get to a lot of particular things. My particular um, agenda, you'll see it if you go to my Facebook page, it's, it's No Wasted Votes. It talks about how we can make every vote count, and that ties into things like systemic racism. Again, unfortunately, we didn't have time to get into the, the depth and complexity of that issue. It, it really means a lot to me. And we also didn't get to talk about education as, as a teacher. That would have been a very welcome conversation. Likewise, as a, someone of the Ethics Planning Commission, issues of planning and how they relate to affordable housing. But again, um, those are all on the, the web page. And I look forward to your vote on November 6th. Thank you. Great. Thank you. And thank you all so much for coming out tonight. We really appreciate it. Thank um, you. We want to let everybody know, of course, they can vote now early at Town City Hall, which I used to always forget to say, but that's really important, I know. Um, or to vote on Election Day, which is Tuesday, November 6th. Um, and of course, stay tuned to Channel 17 for our more continuing election coverage. Thank you and good night.